Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. What does the Bible say about prosperity? Now, before I move on to anything else, I want to read Acts chapter 20 and beginning with verse 19. This is what Paul said, serving the Lord. Let's start with verse 18. You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. I served the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. But I kept back, he said how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. I kept back nothing, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly. uh, Paul was not ashamed of the word of God. You skip over to Acts chapter 24 and verse 14. This is what he says when he's brought before the Sanhedrin. Sorry, not the Sanhedrin. This is the governor Felix. He's brought on trial and this is what he says. But this I confess to you, the same Paul, according to the way which they call a heresy, so I worship the God of my fathers, fully believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Anytime you talk about prosperity and the principles of prosperity in the Bible, you always have knuckleheads that come out of the woodwork and they start saying, this guy's a prosperity gospel preacher. He just tells people that if they'll get saved, they'll get rich. And they really have a very, very shallow view as to what prosperity is. When I talk about the prosperity of God and his blessing found in the word of God, I'm not talking about when you get saved automatically, God's going to make you rich. It's a promise of salvation. The moment you get born again, you're going to experience untold riches. That is a false doctrine. That's not found anywhere in the Bible. There are many abuses of the doctrine of prosperity in the Bible. People call it the prosperity gospel to try and nail it with some negative uh, stigma, you know, which I always had a difficulty of understanding because I call it, I mean, the gospel is prosperity. So you can't call the gospel a poverty gospel. Certainly can't do that. Because when God saves you, you come out of the depravity of sin and he makes you rich spiritually. And if you'll listen to his principles, he'll also make you rich materially. So it's certainly not a a poverty gospel. It's certainly not if you get saved, you have to take a vow of poverty. That's not found anywhere in in the Bible. And certainly not something Jesus taught. And there's a lot of people that try to nail prosperity in the Bible in a negative lens by just labeling it the prosperity gospel and then attributing every single nutcase that's on Christian TV at 4 a.m. with a lime green suit and dollar signs all over him that literally he just buys a 30-minute section at 4 4 a.m. just to try and tell people if you'll sow $100,000 today, the John 3.16 blessing is going to come to you. If you'll sow... Uh, the the $224 offering today, then the first Peter 224 blessing is going to come your way. You'll be healed. You'll be saved. And they try to market God's blessing in a way where uh, they use monetary currencies to try and buy healing and get 
and get saved and have peace and have joy when in reality the only currency heaven honors when it comes to healing when it comes to forgiveness of sins when it comes to peace and joy is the currency of faith the kingdom of heaven is not in meat and drink it's in righteousness it's in peace and it's in joy in the holy ghost so the devil loves to float ridiculous imbalanced preachers that get onto the ditch on one side of the on, uh, of of a of a truth and they 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 drill it in a way where they've they've distanced themselves from the biblical authenticity of that message and as a result it puts a sour taste in everyone's mouth they throw the baby out with the bathwater bath and then the moment you mention prosperity it's like they, they look like they got baptized in pickle juice. They look like a wart on the pickle. They just stare at you like this. Oh, this guy's probably a prosperity preacher. As if it's a bad thing. Because their only understanding of prosperity is what they've been taught by some ridiculous, excessive, uh, false teacher, unfortunately, that they've been exposed to. But look, if you want to apply that type of reasoning that, you know, every time you see someone get... Uh, an imbalanced approach to a scriptural doctrine that we just got to throw the whole doctrine out, then you're going to do that with the doctrine of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And you're going to do that with salvation. And you're going to do that with healing. You're going to do that with every other doctrine. Just because someone warps and perverts a scriptural truth does not mean it's not true. Does not mean that you can't take it, you, you, you can't take it seriously or, or discover the actual meaning to it, and then benefit from it. And for far too long, the church and many Christians, unfortunately, because pastors and ministers, and not just pastors, evangelists too, and preachers in large, shy away from talking about what the Bible says about kingdom prosperity, a lot of Christians are suffering unnecessarily at the hands of the devil in this area of poverty because preachers don't have the necessary courage to, and, and, and really it's not just courage, it's, it's the patience and time that it takes to actually go through what the Bible says about prosperity and dismantle people's false views on prosperity so that they can be helped. It's like the same way with healing. Well, I don't preach on healing just in case someone doesn't get healed. Well, do you know how many people are being robbed of the blessing of divine healing just because you're such a coward and you won't open your mouth on the subject of healing? Do you know how many Christians remain poor because preachers are cowards and won't speak on how to break the back of poverty and enter into God's blessing? Where they're not in a place of perpetual need, but now they're in a place where they have an overflow to meet the needs of, a, of, a, of our generation. So I'm, I want to talk about what the Bible, not what I have to say, not what I read in a book somewhere, what the Bible says about prosperity. First of all, we need to define what prosperity is. What is prosperity? Well, I looked in Miriam's Webster's dictionary, and then I'm going to tell you Bible definitions of prosperity. Miriam Webster and the pretty much every major dictionary agrees that prosperity is being in a state of flourishing, a constant state of growth or increase. It's not having lack, but being rather abundantly supplied. So prosperity is not having lack, not being lack. Uh, in lack in anything, but rather having abundance and being fully supplied 
where you not only have enough for yourself, but you're able to help others. You have excess. Another word for prosperity would be excess. Having more than enough or being able to meet the needs of others. Uh, Bishop David Oedepo describes prosperity as God empowering a man or a woman to meet the needs of a dying world, to clothe the naked, to feed the poor, to, 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 to supply what others are lacking. The world, it's funny because the world celebrates this in everybody else. But when it comes to a Christian actually entering into this level of prosperity, where they're no longer beggars looking for hand-me-downs and constantly uh, on Facebook saying, hey, brothers, pray for me. I need this, this, and that. The moment someone steps out and has overflow and starts to encourage others with the same principles that they've discovered in the word of God to see that blessing unlocked in their life, they beat them down. They try and squash them. Kanye West gets a jet. Drake gets a jet. This guy gets a jet. This guy gets a, you know, he, he starts walking in well, some worldly guy. They celebrate it. They go on YouTube and say, what does that jet look like? Or they go on YouTube and, and uh, you know, there was that old television show on MTV called MTV Cribs where people were infatuated with looking at the wealth and the um, state of prosperity of others. People were obsessed with seeing what did Justin Timberlake's house look like? What does Ashton Kutcher's house look like? What does uh, this person's house look like? And they would tune in and try and watch these shows so that they can just have this momentary uh, dream entertain their mind where I wish I lived in that. But the moment a Christian gets blessed with a nice home or a nice car or, 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 or whatever, doesn't have to take the bus to work anymore, finally can afford their own car. The moment they do that, they label, as them, they label them as fanatics and they're, they just have the love of money in them and that's why. And it's interesting because most people that bash prosperity, most people, and I'm talking about preachers that ha and Christian leaders that have written books that bash prosperity and say that, you know, desiring to advance in life is actually just a form of the love of money and they're crooked, warped people and you should stay away from people that teach that. It's funny because look at their net income that they've generated from their books that they've written on why others should not prosper. Look at their income. Look at, look at, uh, look at where they're, like financially, how they're doing. How many, I can name you some preachers that, that wrote books on why it's wrong to prosper and they themselves have multiple homes and they have Rolexes and they have nice brightling watches and they got all the nice goods of the world making money off telling other people they should stay poor. It's wicked. It's wicked. So what's the definition of prosperity in the Bible? Well, I've written down several scriptures that I'm going to read, and I'm going to take the time to read these scriptures because I don't want you to come off and say, well, TJ said that, you know, if you'll serve God, you'll be made rich. I didn't say anything. This is what the Bible says. And first of all, I never said if you'll serve God, he'll make you rich because that too is not true because there's a lot of good servants of God and there's a lot of good-hearted people and there's a lot of well-intentioned people that are going to make heaven and they win a lot of souls. But because they don't understand the principles of prosperity, they never access this overflow that heaven has to offer. So it's also wrong to teach people that if you'll just serve God, you'll make, they'll, make, they'll be rich because then they'll just point to some guy they know or some woman they know and say, hey, that person served God and they're not rich. It has nothing to do with just serving God. A lot of people serve God and, and they don't benefit off what heaven wants to hand them. It's about 
understanding the laws that govern kingdom prosperity and then practicing those laws. And in so doing, you unlock heaven's overflow. And we're going to get into that. But let's go through Bible definitions of prosperity. Today's going to be a teaching broadcast. So if you have a notebook or you want to rewatch this later on and get a notebook and take notes, it's going to help you. It's going to help you. 3 John verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and be in all things and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. So John the Apostle is not saying that prosperity is just having peace and joy in the midst of the storm. That's not what John was saying. John, who leaned on Jesus' bosom and understood Jesus and the heart of Jesus, said there's a difference and a distinction between having your soul prosper and actually prospering in material things where you're able to meet the needs of others. And I looked into that Greek word that John used for prosper because, you know, all you need is someone that comes out and says, well, you know, the actual Greek word there says that uh, it's not talking about financial wealth. It's just talking about, you know, just, just being content and stuff. That's not what the Greek word was. I looked it up. The Greek word for prosper, I looked it up in Strong's Concordance, and it's, it means to be successful, to be very prosperous and excel. To be successful, to increase and excel. So Bible definition number one of prosperity is to prosper, excel, and be successful. Joseph, the Bible says in Genesis 38, Joseph, uh, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and became very prosperous. And uh, Potiphar, the master of the house, saw that everything Joseph did prospered in his hand and he made him master over his entire house. So that wasn't this like internal prosperity, Joseph. He just, you know, he had a good attitude through it all. No, what he was touching was multiplying and increasing. And even a heathen person who did not know the God of Israel saw and took note of it and said, let's put that guy in charge of everything because everything that touches Joseph's hands ends up growing. Number two, definition, biblical definition of prosperity is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 and verses 1 through 14. Actually, yeah, let's read it all. Now it shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Pause here. One of the reasons I'm doing this broadcast today is because I have several people that have reached out to me in late in, in recent times, and they've asked me, when are you, I mean, when are you going to do a, a, a broadcast on money and how to, how to prosper and how to, how to flee poverty, how to, to move out of a place of need? They asked me, they're like, when are you going to do a broadcast? And I felt convicted. Why should I shrink back? Why did I take so long? Because I've talked about this before, but I've never dedicated an entire broadcast to it, to my shame. And, and it's not because I was ashamed of it. It's not because I was trying to hold it back. It's not because I was, you know, what are people going to say? I, I really don't care what people say. But I just, I never ventured it out because, you know, I never, unfortunately, never thought that people really were, were that interested in that. You know, people want healed. People want saved. People want deliverance and all that. But those people that wrote those things to me, it convicted me. And it was, I, I shrank back from hold, and I held back things that were profitable to people. And, uh... Meanwhile, people are waiting, you know, for secrets of the word of God that will unlock this dimension of prosperity for them. 
and they watch me regularly and they're not getting it. And so that, that's why I'm doing this. And I'm going to do it more often. Because one of the things of the la- one of the things that's going to happen in these last days is uh, Proverbs says there's going to be a transfer of the wealth of the wicked into the hands of the righteous. It's going to be an end time transfer of wealth to fund this end time harvest and get the gospel out before it's eternally too late. Do you understand that it takes money to get the gospel out? Do you understand that it takes money to hold crusades? It takes money to. Uh, to, to, to set up gospel crusades, Reinhard Bonnke's crusades in Africa that led 60, uh, no, 79 million people to the Lord. It took several millions of dollars. I think it took like $100 million to get those, go- or $60 million, something like that, to get the, uh, those gospel crusades set up. So it wasn't free. It's not like you go to an airport and you just say, hey, I want to see people saved. And they're like, well, come on, we'll fly you first class. And then you get to the ground, where you're going to do the crusade and you just have people waiting there that are willing to set up a stage for you free of cost and hand out uh, all kinds of rice and, and unperishable, imperishable items to help the people. Just free. We just wanted to bless the people. No, that doesn't happen. These people got a vision from God and every vision from God requires God's provision for fulfillment. That's what hap- unfortunately what happens in Bible college. You have people that hear from God this wonderful vision. They want to see a nation shaken by the power of God. But then because in Bible college and then throughout church services, because of religious traditions, they're told that to desire increase and desire material growth and increase and multiplication is wrong. They never set themselves up to receive funding from heaven to actually see the dream of God realized in their life. And so what do they do? They end up becoming baristas somewhere and they just abandon the mission of God. They abandon what God called them, the high place God called them to because they lack the necessary funding to do that. Then uh, other people, they feel like they are called to be missionaries to some place in, 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 in uh, Africa or in the Indonesia or Papua New Guinea. And because they don't understand the principles of prosperity, how to tap in to heaven's economy, they go on GoFundMe and they act like glorified beggars and they start asking money for every, from everybody. It's interesting that people that hate, say they, they can't stand the prosperity gospel and can't stand the, the message of prosperity and people that talk about how God wants to increase people. I can't stand that. It's funny because every single one of them are dipping their fingers into someone else's prosperity trying to get what God's called them to do done. Everybody that, tells, that, that hates prosperity are all chewing off someone else's prosperity. And dipping into someone else's prosperity and acting like a beggar on Facebook, asking for everybody to help them fulfill. Instead of going to God and seeing God as their source and God as their provider, they'd rather have their hand out and be beggarly towards men. I wrote this on Twitter. Uh, Yes, uh, two days ago. Anyone offended at the statement that God has made me rich is more likely to credit hard work or their own intellectual prowess for their abundance rather than God. I choose to give credit to whom credit is due. God is my source. God is my provider. Anyone offended at the statement that God has made me rich or God has made someone rich is, is more inclined and more likely to credit their own hard work or intellectual prowess for the abundance of things they have, you know, 
you know, uh, it's hard work. You know, what's the secret to all your success? It's hard work. You know, I kept in the grind and everything. And instead of giving credit to whom credit is due, that God has been the source of their supply and God's been the source of their abundance. I refuse, just like Abraham. One of the reasons why God blessed him so much is because he refused to credit anybody else for his source of prosperity, why he was rich in livestock, silver, and gold, Genesis 13, 2. He refused to allow the king of, the king of Sodom and said, hey, the spoil of war is yours, take it. He said, I've lifted my hand to God most high. I've lifted my hand to God most high. And I said, I won't take a, a, a single sandal thong from the king of Sodom, lest he should say, I have made Abraham rich. And in the next chapter, starting with verse 1, God appeared to Abram at night and said, Abraham, what you did, it pleased me. And indeed, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly, and I'm going I'm to be your shield, and your reward will be very great. So biblical, biblical definition of prosperity. Let's continue on with this. Deuteronomy 20, 28. All these blessings will come on you and overtake you because you've obeyed the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause. So blessing follows you everywhere you go. Blessed will you be when you come in. Blessed will you be when you go out. God calls you to rural Africa to set up a missionary thing. You'll be blessed there. God calls you to Detroit, Michigan. You'll be blessed there. God calls you to the most prospering nation on earth. God will bless you there. God calls you to the most impoverished nation on earth. God will bless you there if you'll continue to follow his path. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They'll come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. He'll bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. How many of you, by a show of hands, have ever had in Sunday school this scripture portion to memorize? No, we don't memorize. We're never taught to memorize this portion of scripture. We're taught to memorize what? You know, the Beatitudes, which it's great. You shouldn't memorize them. But very few children can memorize or uh, quote verbatim and through memory what I'm reading right now. Very forget children, very few adults. Sunday school teachers can't even quote this. And it's a shame because what dominates the minds of people? Finances. Number one cause of divorce. Finances. What gets people to work 14 hour days? Then raise three kids at work, uh, at home, and burn themselves out. Finances. And God never meant life to be hard and weighed down, breaking your back, just trying to make ends meet. That's how things were for the, the Israelites in Egypt. Read Exodus chapter 1. The Bible says they languished in heart because they were burdened down by their taskmasters. And I'm going to get into this later on. Income tax was only for World War I. They said they were going to remove it, but that income tax has stayed federal income tax and now because the government's chewing away at more money it forces it's a it's a system designed force to get both parents out of the home because before it was one of the parents stayed home predominantly the the, the mother would stay home raise the children didn't send them to public school they 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 trained up their children in the fear and admonition of the lord but now you got the kids out of out of uh, the home, into public schools, which are designed to indoctrinate people. You've lost control of your kids now, all because you can't 
pay your, your, your rent. You can't pay your income tax. You can't pay all the taxes. You're taxed when you make your money. You're taxed when you spend your money. It's a system designed to keep people poor. Like it was in Exodus 1. The Egyptians created a system to keep the Israelites low. And they complained because of it. And God brought them out of Psalm 105.37. The Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt loaded with silver and gold. Part of the deliverance the Israelites experienced from Egypt is not just uh, deliverance as slaves and, and, and the system of slavery they had, but delivered from the financial bondage they were caught in, in Egypt. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he has sworn. Verse 10 says, Then all the peoples will see that you are people called by my name, and they will be afraid of you. Verse 11, And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods. In the New Living Translation, it says plenty of prosperity. So if you don't like the word prosperity, if you hate the term prosperity, you're going to have to rip out quite a few pages from your Bible. Psalm 35, 27, the Lord delights in the prosperity of his servant. You look at others. I mean, it's, the scripture is, has over 2,000 promises or rather it's not promises, but principles and covenants that discuss or refer to or relate to prosperity. Over 2,000 times, God talks about money and prosperity in the Bible. So if you hate it, you're going to have to rip out a lot of your Bible. A lot of your Bible. So what does the Bible word for prosperity in Deuteronomy 28.11 mean? The word is yatar in the Hebrew. And that word yatar means to have excess more than enough. To have more than enough. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. So for those people that say, well, that's Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. It's not about that anymore. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. Paul says that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have a sufficiency in everything that you need and an abundance unto every good work. An abundance. So for all those... Preachers that say, how many of you know God will meet your needs and that's all? No, he's, they're selfish for talking like that. God's not selfish. He told you to be concerned with the needs of others. And so God would not just meet your needs, give you a command to meet the other people's needs, but only meet your needs. And then as a result, disqualify you from even obeying his word that says you're to clothe the poor and feed the hungry. He says, I want to give you a sufficiency in everything you need just like David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He will not lack. You will not lack. If the Lord is your shepherd, he said, I'll, you'll never lack. But then it's not just not having a lack. It's entering into a place where you have an abundance to meet the needs of people around you. I never understood the people that say, I hate, I, I can't stand when people talk about prosperity. What's your definition of prosperity? Prosperity is not about how much I have. Prosperity is about how much I can give and how great a blessing I can be. Prosperity is not, it does not consist in the abundance of things I own. Prosperity consists in the level of generosity that I can attain to in blessing others that are around me. So people that have a problem with prosperity, you got to evaluate what they're saying. They're telling you, I don't want you to meet the needs of people around you. They're telling you that it's not important to take care of the poor. Which, by the way, I can go through several scriptures that talk about closing your ears to the cries of the poor and inviting a curse on your life. You can't just, if you're a Christian, you are to 
Open your ears to the cries of the poor and then generate a plan with God where you can generate wealth to help those that are in need. Psalm 35, 27, the Lord has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. That word prosperity there is the shalom, which many of you know that word. But what does the word shalom even mean? It means completeness, fully supplied, having welfare, health, and being fully complete in every area of life. That's what shalom, God delights in having you abundantly supplied, fully complete. Not you going around panhandling and always asking for a lift to church and a lift to that. Instead, God wants to take you to a place where you're the one giving lifts. You're the one buying cars for others. You're the one that owns the dealership now. And you can help people. That family that has four kids. And, and they can't make it to church because their car's too small. They can't afford a van. You can buy them a van. Prosperity is a beautiful thing when your motivation and your purpose is in place. You see, you look, you talk about prosperity in a message like this. I, I, I really don't care. But I guarantee you, you're going to have people that unsubscribe from my YouTube channel. Go ahead, unsubscribe. You don't even have a right heart. You don't even have a right heart. Your heart's not right before God if you don't desire to help people. And then you're going to get, what do you have? A hundred people. We've never had a low, 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 uh, low number like this in the last like six months. Just a hundred people watching. Why? Because you have a bunch of American, Canadian, Western people that have all their needs met. They have everything they need. They don't care about other people. God's met all my needs. Amen. Good. Good. Great. But what are you doing to help alleviate the pain of poverty on other people's lives? What are you doing to help alleviate the plague of penury off other people's lives? There's too many selfish Christians care only about their needs being met. Don't want to get into a level of abundance where they can actually be the solution to other people's problems. Instead, well, we'll keep them in prayer. The Bible says if you see someone in need, and just say, God bless you, be comfortable. How does the love of God even abide in you? The Bible says if you're not moved in your bowels of compassion for them, to actually break them free from that low place, the Bible says, John, the apostle says, how does the love of God even abide in that person? How do you even say you love God if you can look at people stricken down by affliction and poverty and just look the other way and say, eh, it, it, it irritates me. It's what you have with Jesus in the... The, the Samaritan parable. You had the, the Levite, the priest. They looked, they looked at the guy that was in need and needed to be helped. They just went to the other side of the road. It's how some Christians are. You go to the other side, I'm okay. Selfish. And I would even venture in to say other unkind things, but I won't because I'll tame my tongue. But you're not very bright if that's you. The scripture says there was a good Samaritan that set his needs... He had, if, how would he have been able to supply that guy's need to stay in a, in a hospital for two or three nights, get him bound uh, or bandaged up with wine and oil if he had no wine and oil to help the guy? He needed wine and oil to help if he was going to actually help. Instead of wishing that you can be a help to people, why don't you tap in to God's plan to help people? Listen to this chapter in Teal Osborne's book on the, pos the power of positive desire. The chapter is entitled Penury or Prosperity. If everyone would use God's laws, this is T.L. Osborne, which you've had a hard time finding someone who's impacted this earth with the gospel more than him and his wife have. 
If everyone would use God's laws of and discipline themselves and go for life's best, the privileged few would cease to monopolize the good life and the so-called underprivileged majority would transform themselves by God's principles and the success life would be shared by the many. Religion constantly says, beware of material affluence or even sufficiency may corrupt and spoil people. Stay poor. This demeaning assault on Christian minds began during the dark ages. So there's a history. You know that the, the apostles didn't believe that we have to stay poor. The early church wasn't poor, and I'm going to get into that later on. It's impossible to actually read the book of Acts and think that the early church was poor. But this doctrine of staying poor, staying pious, crept into the church in the dark ages. An unprejudiced study of an early Christianity reveals the practice of positive faith for God's abundant lifestyle. They prospered and they were generous. But then Constantine's acceptance of Christ popularized Christianity. Following this epoch, a dominating church hierarchy... The religious system grew and evolved to control business, science, education, and religion. And because there were corrupt ecclesiastical leaders, they manipulated public wealth until the religious system monopolized financial control and the people were reduced to poverty through tolls and taxes. The masses became restless in their subservient role and asserted their claim to a better life. That was when financial experts in the church hierarchy consorted with the clergy to invent doctrines which would sanctify poverty, make it a holy thing if you were poor, and pacify the peasantry. Don't worry if you're poor. God sees it and he's honoring you because of it. That's what they did. Invoking God, they brainwashed the people who were not allowed to read the Bible. Their mischievous dictums advocated three things. That material poverty fosters spiritual humility. Keep him poor, keep him humble. That prosperity or the good life actually motivates arrogance, pride, and sinful living. That it's impossible to have riches and stay right before God. If that were the case, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all of them are in hell and burning there. When in reality, the Bible says in the book of James that Abraham was the friend of God. And Abraham was by in any man's definition of the word prosperity, uh, the word poor, uh, the word poverty, poor. He, was, he, he had abundance. He had more than enough. God said, I'm El Shaddai, the God of more than enough. And I'll multiply you and make you exceedingly great. So if prosperity made you at enmity with God and an enemy of heaven's system, then why is it that God never rewards obedience with poverty? He always rewarded obedience with prosperity, with increase throughout the entire Old Testament. And you can find scriptures in the New Testament that validate it. And then the third thing that the ecclesiastical leaders uh, manipulated the people with is by telling them that ordinary people are not qualified to manage material wealth without being infected by its potential malignancy. You're, you're not spiritual enough to actually have your needs supplied and more than enough to be, ha to be entrusted with that level of wealth. You're not spiritual enough. Now I will say there are people who are not spiritual enough to be entrusted with wealth. And that's why I told you the motivation and purpose for prosperity is to do what? To help humanity in their needs, to reach the loss and to give towards the kingdom. Three motivations, three reasons you should desire increase. Number one, to bless humanity and alleviate the burdens that plague humanity. Number two, to reach the loss. 
to finance gospel crusades and evangelistic endeavors. And then number three, to give towards the kingdom. Give towards your, your, your local church so that they can advance their local vision to see the gospel reaching the people. And I'll finish this with biblical definition of prosperity. And then I got questions for those who hate the message of prosperity. Number three, biblical definition of prosperity is in 2 Chronicles 26. As long as Josiah sought the Lord, the Lord made him to prosper in everything. That word prosper, I looked it up. It means to advance, to be profitable, to see, show, or experience prosperity in your life. To push forward with violent force. So those are, that's how the Bible defines prosperity. Not just having some ethereal, you know, mystical feelings of good energy. That's not what the Bible talks about as being prosperity. It talks about material affluence and wealth that is useful in doing the will of God on the earth. Seven questions. Actually, I have eight questions that I, um, that I want to ask those who hate prosperity. So I, this is really designed to help you see the ridiculousness, the, the lunacy of those that, that uh, bash the message of prosperity. Number one, who do you give credit for the things that you have? Who do you credit for all the abundance that you have? Because, you know, like I said it before, you have people that bash prosperity and they're doing it on a $2,300 MacBook Pro. And they're watching a YouTube channel that's talking about prosperity on their $1,800 flat screen TV, 4K OLED TV in their beautiful home that's air conditioned and heated in the winter. It's funny how in your level of comfort, you're so quick to, uh, to hate on people that see God as their provider and so quick to criticize the principles of prosperity. Criticizing prosperity on a $1,500 iPhone makes no sense. It makes no sense. Paul said, I, would, I will not boast in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham said, I've lifted my hand. I'll not take a, a, a single sandal from the king of Sodom lest he should say, I've, I've made Abraham rich. God has made me rich. God, if I have anything, God's the source of my supply. I acknowledge him in all my ways. And he directs my paths. He is the hand that lifts me up. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He'll lift you up. I refuse to credit any man, any woman, any system, any government, any political leader. You know, there's a lot of preachers that say, you know, I, I, I just know if another president would come in and this Democrat president would come out, that we'd finally, we'd finally, you know, have the economy running again. So you're quick to credit a political leader for your financial situation and leave it in the control of a political leader whether you're blessed or whether you're not I choose to leave it in God's hands and he said already all these blessings will overtake you as you obey the voice of the Lord your God God's the source number two question why is poverty condemned in the Bible if prosperity is such an awful thing, why is it that if you read the book of Proverbs, and I'm going to read a few Proverbs for you, and you read other places in the Bible, poverty is never looked at in a positive, positive lens. Poverty is always condemned. It's seen as an evil thing. It's seen as an enemy of the people. 
It's never, hey, if you'll obey the Lord your God, he'll make you so poor that you'll look at Job's situation and wish, wish you had what he had when he was at his lowest part in life. But you know what? You'll make heaven. That's not, that's not how the Bible uh, views poverty. Proverbs 14.20, listen to this. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Verse 23, in all labor there's profit, but idle talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 15.6, I'm going to run through these. Proverbs 15.6, in the house of the righteous there's much treasure, not pressure, treasure. But in the revenue of the wicked is trouble, lack, hardship. Proverbs 10, 15. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 15. You know what's crazy to me too? Is that there's a lot of preachers that um, they'll say, oh, I, you know, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't believe in that prosperity business. In front of the mic, but get behind closed doors and talk to them. They 100% believe in the principles of prosperity. And they believe in God's blessing. And I'm telling you this. I know people that on a broadcast or on a, at a church preaching, they would condemn this type of preaching. But then, behind closed doors, we're just believing God for uh, $1.3 million to come in so that we can, you know, we can, uh, we can build this new sanctuary. And we're, we're, we're giving, we're sowing, we're doing everything we can. We know God's going to supply all our needs. So you're, you're quick to el eliminate that blessing from other people's lives. You're quick to hold back the thing that's profitable to you from other people. Makes no sense to me. Proverbs 10, 15. The rich man's wealth is a strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The destruction, not the honor of the poor is their poverty. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. Poverty. Proverbs 13, 4. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the lazy man desires, but he has nothing. But the soul of the diligent will be made rich. Poverty is never spoken of with honor in the Bible. Riches, honor, the Bible says in the way of righteousness is riches, honor, and life. So it doesn't say in the way of righteousness is hardship, discontentment, and constant need. In the way of righteousness is riches, honor, and life. And I described what I meant by what, what it is to be rich. The Bible says... <clears throat> very clearly what it means to be rich. It's to be abundantly supplied so you have no needs yourself and you're able to meet the needs of those around you. I have to constantly reiterate that because you're going to have a bunch of knuckleheads come out of this and say, you know, TJ just teaches that, you know, the true test of spirituality is how rich you are. I didn't say that. I never brought that up. I don't teach that. I certainly don't preach that. The difference between someone who's rich Christian and someone who's a poor Christian is the rich Christian has tapped in to the laws that govern prosperity and the poor Christian is the one that's ignorant. You know, whatever area of scripture you're ignorant on and you have no knowledge of, whether it be healing, prosperity, salvation, you disqualify yourself from receiving the blessing in those areas. How can someone get saved unless they hear about the gospel of salvation? How can someone be healed unless they're told God wants to heal them? How can someone enter into prosperity unless they're told how to do it? And they start to cooperate with God's laws and principles that bring them on a path of increase. Number two, question, why is poverty condemned in the Bible if it's so godly? Number three, why did God never list poverty as a reward for obedience? Deuteronomy 28, if you read the rest of the chapter, 15 to 68, 
you hear about how God said, if you don't obey the, the voice of the Lord, the heavens above you will be like bronze and I'll not open up the storehouse of heaven to you and you'll constantly be in need and you'll constantly be a, a shame to the people around you and the nations around you. You'll be a borrower, a borrower always and you'll, uh, you'll, you'll never lend to any. Whereas when you do obey the voice of the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 28, 14 says, you'll be a lender to many nations and you'll borrow from none. So if, if poverty was so God-honoring and this wonderful thing that God loves, why is it that he never told people, like Job 36, 11, if you'll obey and serve me, you'll spend your days in prosperity, the Bible says, and your years in pleasure. Why does he not say, you'll spend your days in poverty and your, your, your life will be a total mess? Why does he reward obedience with not just spiritual riches, but financial riches? Why? Why did Jesus say in Mark 10, 28, he that gives up houses or brothers or mothers for my sake and the gospel's sake and is not ashamed of me and my word in, in that generation. Why did he say that man will in this present time, so he's not talking about heaven, it says in this present time, he will reap a hundredfold houses, brothers, and everything else he goes off the list. Why doesn't he say, whoever is faithful to my word in the gospel in this generation, he'll have nothing here. He'll actually, he'll go to a very low place in life, but it'll be worth it when it doesn't say that. Psalm 112, listen to this. So God rewards, God has always rewarded obedience with increase. And he's always um, tied the consequence of decrease to disobedience. God has always rewarded obedience with increase and he has always tied the consequence of decrease to disobedience. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in keeping his commandments. His descendants will be so poor on the earth and the generation of the upright will be a total mess. No, his descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Verse three, wealth and riches will be in his house. What is gonna be in his house? Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. He is dispersed abroad, he gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, and his horn will be exalted with honor. See, people, they look at Paul's life and they say, you know, Paul was shipwrecked often, and, and so, you know, we're not promised anything. Paul, first of all, was on commission to carry out the gospel commission to the ends of the, the earth, and he had, a, he had a mission that he was on. He had a vision, and his vision included, you know, the Bible says um, that he constantly was collecting up offerings so large that he was meeting the needs of brethren and sistren, if you want to say it that way, around the world. He constantly thanked the Philippians, you know, because of your gift, we were able to supply that need. He, he was meeting the needs. Paul was a prosperous man. I'm not talking about having a nice car and nice house and, and, and living in a mansion. And that's your drive for prosperity. Your heart's not right before God if that's your drive for prosperity. Houses, cars, all that, it, it, it's going to come. It'll come. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. God will bless you. God will, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But if your mind is set on riches... You have the love of money. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. He didn't say you can't have both God and money. You'll either serve God with your money or you'll serve money as your God. 
But he certainly did not say you can't have both. Matter of fact, a lot of times, in order to properly serve God, you need money to get that work done. Paul had a burden for his generation. That's why he collected offerings to meet the needs of people. And he actually says in Philippians 4, I've never been in need. He said, I've learned to be abased and I've learned to prosper. Meaning, when I'm down, I know the principles to increase. It's what happened in Acts chapter 28. He gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta. He's a prisoner. He's got nothing, not a dime to his name. And the Bible says, by the end of the, by the, end of the time they spent on that island called Malta, they were showered with high-level gifts and blessings, and they left overflowing. They had, the centurion was like, man, this is amazing. We came here with nothing, and look at all this. They showered them and Paul with high-level blessings and gifts of honor. He, he said, I've learned how to be poor and increase. And then I've learned to know how to handle and manage the increase that I experience. And he said, I'm full and I'm abundantly supplied. So the whole Paul was poor is nonsense. Paul understood these principles and it enabled him to be a great blessing to people around him. Traditional religious preaching has caused many to hate God's plan to alleviate poverty and rather embrace poverty because Paul was poor, amen? No, he wasn't. And we're going to get into this in a couple of seconds. If God hates prosperity, question number four, why did he create Eden and design heaven with it? You look at Eden, how it's described. It's not a place of lack and penury. It's a place of prosperity and plenty. He actually, he actually said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and govern it. And everything on the earth, every living thing, except for the tree in the midst of the garden of Eden, which is the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of, of good and evil. Don't eat that one. But everything else, every living thing is for you to enjoy. It's for you to enjoy. If God hates it so much, why did Adam uh, live in a place designed with it? And then look at heaven. Heaven is so prosperous that the walls of heaven are designed to include uh, multitudes of diadems and diamonds. The thing that you buy once in your life to bless your, your spouse with, your wife, a nice diamond ring to propose her, the Bible says heaven's walls are covered with it, covered with rubies, covered with all kinds of precious stones. The street of heaven is paved with gold. So if God hated prosperity, why does he surround himself with He must be a miserable person in heaven. Can't believe I'm standing. Uh, angels change the roads, put them back to asphalt and concrete. That's not how it is. Number five question, was Jesus poor? And many people will answer, yes, he was, but it's not true. You look at the very beginning of Jesus's life. When the wise men came to him, what did they do? They opened up their treasuries and they provided to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the thing is, is that a lot of people have seen cute little church plays where they have a few little wise men come in and they got one little, you know, one little vial of, myrrh, of, of, of frankincense and then they have a little, a little uh, what do you call it, a little trinket filled with, filled with gold. And it was this tiny little gift that they gave them. And they say there was only three wise men. First of all, there is no thing, nothing in the Bible that says there were three wise men. It says wise men from the east. And if you study it, there was probably well more than three wise, three wise men. Secondly, secondly, um, it is said and commonly believed that the treasury they had was carried 
on caravans carried by camels. So it wasn't this cute little trinket that they opened up with a little bit of gold and say, here, here's my little offering. They were caravans filled with gold, frankincense and myrrh. And many believed that many believe this, that God actually supplied the need that was coming where they were going to dwell in Egypt for several years because Herod was out to kill Jesus. They went to Egypt that the one offering Jesus received at his birth was sufficient enough to carry out his living and all his expenses and his family's expenses in Egypt. And some say he came back from Egypt when he was six years old. So for about six full years, that one offering supplied abundantly everything Joseph, Mary, and, and Jesus needed and, and whatever children they had after that, if they had them in Egypt. Was Jesus poor? No. Paid their entire stay in Egypt. The first, very first miracle God did for Jesus was to abundantly supply him. Number two, Luke chapter 8, listen to this. Luke chapter 8. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And there were 12 men with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had been cast out seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. He had a treasury, and the Bible says he had many ministry partners. And not just poor ministry partners, the Bible notes this was Herod's personal steward, his personal assistant. I can imagine a king paying his personal assistant quite well. And Jesus, one of his main partners, was Herod's steward. Women supplied him of their own treasury. He had, first of all, which poor person has a treasurer and a treasury? You don't go, you know, to homeless cities in America. You go to California and Los Angeles. You go to the homeless city and then you have some, you know, poor guy that's on meth just saying, hey, where's my treasurer? I need my, I need my money today. I need, I need my treasurer to, you know, I need my account. They don't have accountants. They don't have people that govern their money. Whatever they got is in their, their backpack. Jesus didn't just have a backpack. He had a treasury, a treasury, and he had a treasurer. Who was his treasurer? Judas. And the Bible notes that Judas often stole from the treasury. And nobody noticed, except for Jesus. Nobody noticed. Imagine, have, you know, if you have a bank account that has $36.14, and somebody steals $15, are you going to notice? Absolutely you're going to notice because you didn't have much to begin with. Well, if you had a treasure, a treasury, if you had a bank account with $1.7 billion and someone stole $15 every day for the rest of your life, $100, a thousand bucks every day, would you even feel it? You wouldn't even feel it. The disciples didn't even know that Judas was tapping into his treasury because there was so much there. How do we know there was so much there? John chapter 6, Philip comes to him and says, all these people are getting hungry. What do we do? And he said, can we, you know, even if we buy a full year's, uh, uh, even if we buy enough bread that it costs us a full year's salary, it's not going to be enough for everybody. But isn't it interesting that Philip never said, hey, you know, we really don't have, uh, we don't have anywhere near enough to buy all these people bread. You know, we don't have nearly enough to, we have no, we have no excess. We, we're, we barely, you know, we're operating in the red, Jesus. We got nothing. Philip actually brought it up as a proposition. Hey, I can go in the city and I'll, 
you know, we can spend a full year's salary on this and we'll, we'll help them, but, you know, even then, we're not really sure it's going to help, it's going to supply every one of their needs. And we don't even know if the, there's a bakery in town that has enough money to do all that. They never, they never said, oh, Jesus, you know, we're down to our last $15. We don't, you better tell them to leave. They didn't say that. Philip was ready to go and spend a whole year's wage to supply their needs. That's how you know it wasn't a treasury with a couple of bucks in it. They had at least, we know from scripture, a full year's salary uh, to provide for all their, ne their needs. The Bible says he traveled by boats everywhere he went and, and by donkey when he went into Jerusalem. Well, poor people didn't use boats in those days. They walked. And the places they had, that Jesus had to get to, he could have walked to. But he chose to go by boat. And he paid the boats. It wasn't free. He had to pay the boats. He chose to, to travel in luxury in those days. So he wasn't traveling around trying to save every penny. No, 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 let's go. Let's use the boat. Disciples, you guys look tired. You go ahead. I'll walk on the water after. But you guys go ahead. Don't spare the expense. Jesus wasn't poor. The Bible says that when he was crucified, they got his clothing and they gambled for it. Why did they gamble for it? It was a seamless woven uh, garment, the Bible says. Well, in those days, that was like Prada. That was Gucci. He had a seamless garment woven in one place. It, it was a, a highly... Why would the soldiers gamble? To just get a piece of it. Because it was a high quality fabric. They weren't just doing it to fulfill prophecy. Although that was the, what they were doing. Uh, unknowingly. But they did it because there was, there was motivation behind it. I need, if I can just get a, a piece of this. I can maybe make a pillow at home. Whatever. That's some luxury stuff Jesus was wearing. Jesus wasn't poor. Paul wasn't poor. Talked about it. He was meeting the needs of people everywhere he went. The early church was not poor. They had a distribution center. Stationed in Jerusalem to meet the needs of the city. The Bible says the daily distribution of bread. Well, you can't have a, 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 a feeding clinic if you're barely able to feed yourselves. The Bible says they multiplied and increased to the point where they had a, a distribution center. And they were helping those in need. Number six question I have for those that hate prosperity. Do you love or do you have dreams that your children become beggars one day? Do you wake up? In the morning, and you say, man, I had a dream last night, and I just pray it's, ac it's realized one day my two children were poor and they were beggars, and uh, they, had, they, they, they struggled through life. They were, always, they were always going around asking for their needs to be met, and they went from job to job and paycheck to paycheck, and they weren't able to even, they weren't even able to supply for their own household. I just pray one day this dream is real. You, you, you have some missing brain cells if that's how you dream about your children. Well, if you dream that your children... I mean, what do people say? You know, I, I dream that my child's a, a doctor one day. And even children, they don't dream about one day becoming a, a, a garbage picker. What do they say? I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a, a, a doctor one day. I want to be that. I want to be a, a... You know, someone that's going to be a... a uh, an asset to their generation. No child and no parent dreams of their child growing up and doing nothing and being poor and living in the, 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 the ash heap of beggars. 
They have great dreams for their children. One day they'll be rich. One day they'll, they'll, they'll supply the needs of those around them. Well, who do you think put that, wired you to think that way? Jesus, God did. Your heavenly father. And the Bible says that your heavenly father, do not fear little flock, your heavenly father has no problem with giving you the good things of the kingdom of heaven. He, has no pro- he wants to see you flourish. He wants to see you grow. He wants to see you increase. It's religion that teaches that increase is wrong, that increase is sinful, that increase moves you away from God. God never taught that in Scripture. So if you don't have a dream that your child grows up a beggar, what makes you think God has a dream for you to one day grow up and you're a beggar? Ludicrous. Number seven, what has poverty generated for many Americans? Both parents at work, I talked about it before, the income tax that was instituted in the First World War, federal income tax, it was supposed to leave right after. It stayed because it was designed to keep parents out of the home so that now you have to send your children to to government-funded schooling where they can then indoctrinate and teach whatever they want to teach your children with. Paid schools. It destroys marriages. Think of it. How many marriages are destroyed and are divorced because of finances? I think it's like 70% of marriages that fall within the first few years. It's because of financial disagreements. Financial disagreements. Financial pressure. Financial uh, stress. Well, all that stress would be alleviated if people just understood the laws that govern prosperity in the kingdom of heaven. They don't have to worry. You know, Jesus said, don't worry about your life, your body, what you're going to put on. Instead, there's no teaching in the church that actually encourages people to not worry about those things. Jesus said, I, your father, has, he knows of everything you have need of. And those things dominate the minds of them that do not believe in heaven's will for their life. So when people don't know the laws of prosperity, they're unbelievers in this area and it dominates their mind. Money dominates their mind. When in reality, you're never supposed to pray about money. You're never supposed to fast about financial breakthroughs. You're not supposed to worry about money. You're supposed to practice kingdom principles that will create kingdom wealth. And in doing those kingdom principles, there's no worry about it. Because people aren't taught and they're still in the financial system of the world, they're enslaved by it, weighed down by poverty. Weighed down by poverty. Number eight question, and this is my final question. How are you to obey God to clothe the naked if you have nothing to clothe, your, clothe yourself? Bible says in Deuteronomy 15, 11, you should open up your hand to your brother who's poor and you should supply the needy with your hand and your land. Well, if you open up your hand and there's nothing there, how are you going to supply the needy? People believe that material affluence and possessions will corrupt people and corrupt the heart. How then do you explain Bible characters. Abraham was an addicted giver. Every time someone came before him that had a need, there were three people that walked by him. He said, hey, hey, don't turn away from us until, until I've clothed you and I've given you bread and I've helped you. Abraham was generous. The generous soul will be blessed, the Bible says. It's hard to be generous when you have, you have barely enough to make it by yourself. So many government feeding programs are corrupt. Other nonprofits are shells for money laundering. So when this task of clothing the poor 
is neglected by the church because it's not being taught. And people are told to shy away from abundance. You have the world, nonprofits and humanitarian efforts that rise efforts that rise up and try and supply this need. They try and do something, but a lot of them are corrupt. You look at the Clinton Foundation. Talk about corrupt. Collected $100 million when the Haiti earthquake happened. They only built one house. Took a picture with it. The president of Haiti calls Hillary Clinton the uh, Satan herself because of how crooked she is. That happened <laughs> because, you know, imagine if the church was dealing with that. Do you know there was never, it was never supposed to be uh, the church was never supposed to, to lose the mission of building hospitals and supply, building schools and education centers and feeding programs and all that. It was never supposed to be the state's job to supply all those things. It was supposed to, the church was always doing that. But because people were told to back off prosperity, they never, they, you know, it stunted that program. And now it's governments that have to build schools. It's governments that have to build feeding, feeding clinics. It's governments that have, when it's a reality, the church's job to do all those things. So these are eight questions that I have for those that hate prosperity. And I'm going to get into, I'm going to do a video this week on um, the laws and principles of prosperity and how to tap into it. But I wanted to do this broadcast today to open up your heart and your mind and not just put a, a negative sticker on the word prosperity and, and like have a, a sour taste in your mouth and in your stomach, a bitter taste towards it. Or you just think that, you know, anybody that, any preacher that mentions prosperity, oh, he must be, he must love them. He must be a lover of money. It has nothing to do with that. When you have a proper de definition of prosperity, you're going to want all of it that you can. You're going to want all of it that you can, that you can get. I hope today helped you. And, and just a side note, for those that say the love of money is the, or money is the root of all evil, and they misquote it, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of money. Money in your heart is a poison. Money in the hand is a great tool. And when you understand that, you're not afraid of it. And when your heart's pure before God, you're not afraid of it. You actually want more of it so that you can better assist your generation. Money in the heart is pure evil, and it's the root of all evil. And I don't have to get into that. Follow the money for every wicked, wicked industry on this earth, and you can tie it back to an evil, an evil plot, an evil plan that's inspired of Satan. Money in the heart is evil. Money in the hand is a wonderful tool. I'll, 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 I'll finish off this broadcast with one thing. You'll never break out of poverty and that leave that place of perpetual need and constant lack if you don't 
give. If you're not someone who sows into the kingdom, God is not mocked, the Bible says. Whatever a man sows, he'll reap. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 14 or verse 11, it says, As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest will remain. Seed time and harvest. You can't have a harvest without a seed. You can pray. You can fast. You can believe God for financial increase until you give. You've not positioned yourself in the covenant. You've not lined yourself up with co- in the covenant terms to actually access this overflow that heaven has to offer. Give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, falling over into your lap. So I want to give an opportunity for people that heard this message. Maybe you've never heard it before. Maybe you've never given before. Maybe you've never sold anything before. And um, the purpose of this broadcast was not to collect a... a I hope that you understand that the purpose of this broadcast was not to collect an offering. I'm just giving people an opportunity now to tie your finances with heaven's purpose, which this ministry, we win the loss, save the loss at any cost. We're evangelistic. We go out to do heaven's work. So when you tie your finances with heaven's purpose, God will come behind your finances and see to it. And see to it that you're not uh, impoverished, but that you're prospering. That you have an abundant, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians verse 9, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that he who gives seed to the sower and bread for food will increase and multiply the seed that you've sown. It's a foolish farmer that looks at the seed and says, I don't want to give this, I'd rather eat it. The farmer sees within the seed the potential for much fruit. So God's given every person a seed according to your level of, of productivity. It's in sowing that seed that you unlock that increase, the multiplication. Jesus multiplied the bread and the two fish. He didn't multiply nothing. He multiplied what was put in his hands. So if you'd like to sow today into this ministry and connect your your finances with uh, heaven's purpose, you can do so by going to salvationnow.ca slash give. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.